from Two Keto LLC. It's the Obesity Code podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And on the show today, counterintuitive. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Today's show centers around IDM patient Mona Boss, who discovered that the dietary intervention that healed her went against everything she thought she knew about dieting, exercise, nutrition, and metabolism. Like many of us, being overweight has been a lifelong problem for Mona. goes back to when she was a kid. From childhood, I, I think the uh, first time I discovered that I was a chubby kid was looking at pictures when I was about 10 years old on a family trip. And uh, it was from that point on that I uh, always noticed photographs, family pictures, she quickly became sensitive to always being the chubby kid in the picture at school events and such. So, you know, as I got older into my early years, uh, early 20s, I think I tried every diet, every diet pill on the market between the ages of 20 and 30. And at the same time, I was having babies. Mona would always gain weight, like you do during a pregnancy. And then she'd follow a calorie-restricted, low-fat diet to get the weight off. And sooner or later, the pounds would come back on and bring along a few friends as well. Every time I would lose 10 or 15 or 25 pounds, I would gain back the 25 pounds plus another 25 pounds. So that was uh, continued on for many years. Different companies along the way, uh, whether they were herbal companies or Nutrisystem, Weight Watchers, Tops, you name it, I probably have tried it. And they didn't work. Well, dieting wasn't working for her, so she thought maybe there was just something wrong with her. Exercise, now, that would surely work, right? A little bit later on in my life, started doing triathlons, half marathons, um, thinking that I just needed to get moving my body. I tried bodybuilding. And while I was doing all of those things, I would definitely lose weight. I was uh, training for a bodybuilding show back in 2012. And I had lost about 75 pounds at that point and, and had about 30 more to go for what they would consider stage body. And uh, everything just stopped. They cut my calories, they upped my cardio, I couldn't lose any weight. And at that point, the trainer said, well, you're going to have to give it up. This isn't going to work for you. There's something wrong with your body. Go see a doctor. So, in 2008, Mona went to see a doctor. And that's when she found out she was pre-diabetic and her adrenal glands were burned out and no longer functioning correctly. So from there, I worked with some, a naturopath, a uh, acupuncturist, Chinese doctor, 
tried to get everything back into balance and the weight just packed back on. I got right back up to 245 pounds. So I, st I started uh, swimming with a girlfriend and we decided that uh, we were going to, because we like to swim, we like to bike, and we added running to our regime and decided we were going to do a triathlons. So I did triathlons right up until 2017. Since she really enjoyed running, Mona was doing half marathons as well as triathlons. And a couple of, uh, you know, 10K, 5K runs for fun. She joined a local group called Fit Body Boot Camp and spent most of her time training. Six days a week for a year. Anyone who trains that hard for six days a week for an entire year surely is going to lose some weight, right? And in a year, I lost 12 pounds. That's it. Followed the diet plans, followed the workouts, nothing happened. Everybody thinks that if you exercise, you'll lose weight. And here's what's counterintuitive. Doesn't work that way. Here's Dr. Jason Fung to explain why. This idea that you can exercise and lose weight uh, doesn't really hold up. And we know the mechanisms why, uh, yet it persists that people try to do it. And there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that this is the um, mandate that's really been pushed on us by food companies and uh, drink companies because they want to say that, hey, if you drink sugary soda or Gatorade or one of these sugary drinks, then you can simply exercise it off and you'll be fine. The problem is that you won't be fine. Um, and it comes down to normal human physiology. If you drink a lot of sugar, that fructose is going to go to your liver and turn into fatty liver, which is going to cause insulin resistance, which causes excess insulin. That's going to cause you to gain body fat. You can exercise your muscles, but you can't exercise your liver. So that just doesn't equate. I mean, they're completely different physiologic mechanisms. Yes, you'll get stronger. Yes, you'll deplete your muscle glycogen. Yes, you'll deplete some of the excess energy in your body, but very inefficiently. If you think about it, a normal human, like we think about 2,000 calories as sort of an average. What's interesting to me is that if you go back into the 1940s, that was not the normal caloric intake of an American. Uh, normal Americans actually ate closer to 3,000 calories uh, per day, and yet there was no obesity. And it's because they were eating lots of dietary fat, they are eating lots of protein, and they were fine. The point is that you don't have to count your calories. The point is you don't have to exercise. All ideas which are completely uh, counterintuitive uh, today. So in November of 2017, I got very sick. Blood sugars were all over the place. High blood pressure, couldn't lose weight, stopped caring, stopped trying. Finally, my medical doctor sent me to an endocrinologist. My thyroid was way out of whack. So I came out of that first appointment in November of 2017 with three different medications for type 2 diabetes, blood pressure medication, some statins for cholesterol that was out of control, and some thyroid medication. Mona's blood pressure was so high that the endocrinologist 
sent her to the cardiologist within a week. And uh, the cardiologist did, they did an ultrasound and stress test, and he said, Mona, you have a beautiful, healthy heart. Lower your cholesterol, get some weight off, get your blood sugar under control, and get healthy. That's basically what he said. But he said, there's no damage to your heart. You have a healthy heart. There's no reason why you can't get healthy. Mona's doctors got the outcomes right. It's just the advice and how to go about getting there was all wrong. About three months in, my chiropractor introduced me to the book on intermittent fasting by Dr. Jason Fung. Mona's chiropractor had been at a conference in Las Vegas and attended a lecture by Dr. Marcola, who mentioned the complete guide to fasting. So she bought one, brought me home a copy, and said, you should read this. There's some really good information in here. So I read it in two days, and I kind of flirted with some intermittent fasting while still taking all this medication. And then I ordered the obesity code, read through that. And through that, I found some groups on Facebook, which led me to the IDM program. In July 2016, Mona joined the IDM remote program. Started having Zoom meetings with Megan and the group of people in that in the group that we were with. It took me a long time to get the courage to actually start some extended fasting. And uh, Megan was very patient with me as I made excuses and a lot of stress in my life. Reasons why I couldn't fast for more than 18 hours or... 20 hours. When Mona first joined the IDM program in July of 2017, she had the attitude that she was joining a diet program, not a health program, not a therapeutic program. And that, of course, is Megan Ramos, director of the IDM program. So she joined this program initially with the mindset that, yes, this is a diet and it will help her lose weight. And that was her primary focus sort of at the start. And most diabetics have the mentality that if they lose weight, their blood sugar levels will improve. Mona, like so many of us out there, especially women who are listening to this podcast, have tried dozens and dozens if not more, diets over the years. And most of these diets are calorie-restricted diets. So how things go with calorie restriction is as you decrease your calorie intake, your body adapts, just like you would adapt to a budget change. If you suddenly have a drop in income, you're going to cut your spending. It's that simple. So you just reduce your your metabolic budget for the day. So your body acclimates and it cuts spending here and it cuts spending there. So it starts slowing down all of your bodily functions to accommodate your new daily budget. And this is where we see a lot of issues with prolonged caloric restriction in terms of reproductive issues, um, mental health issues, uh, decline in other body system functions, because it's just running at bare minimum, barely even that. So what happens with a calorie-restricted diet? And this is what Mona learned through her journey, as well as so many of our listeners and myself included. We would follow this calorie-restricted diet, and initially our metabolic system would be high. We'd drop a few pounds, feel good, feel motivated to continue, but all of a sudden the weight loss stops. And not only does the weight loss stop, we're feeling terrible. So we're not getting our physical goals met, and now we're, we're 
also physically feeling horrendous at the exact same time. It's just a really terrible all-around situation. So you get frustrated. Um, we get frustrated when we do these calorie-restricted diets and we bottom out and there's no weight loss, there's no progress, and we feel horrendous and we're hungry all of the time because we're not eating any fat. We're afraid of fat because fat is very calorie dense. So we eat minimal fat and we're always, always, always ravenous. So it's not sustainable. People then give up on the calorie restricted diet and they go back to their old eating habits. But the problem now is that your metabolic rate is garbage. It's exceptionally low. So you start introducing all these empty calories again from carbohydrates into the diet and your body doesn't need them anymore to function. It's learned to function on a smaller amount. So now it's just got the surplus of, of energy, which it converts to fat and it stores it for fat to be used later on because it doesn't need it. It's learned how to survive off of a much, much more reduced budget. Through the books and the Facebook groups and all that, Mona learned about the ketogenic diet, and that's where she started. Well, and, you know, I think in the beginning it was, what have I got to lose? You know, I've tried everything else. Let's do this. Let's just throw that tablespoon of garlic butter on top of the steak let's have that whole avocado and pour some olive oil and salt on it and uh the cool thing that happened for me was that when I started to eat the higher fats I wasn't hungry all the time the food cravings started to go away so at the IDM clinic they do a lot of intermittent fasting that is going most of the day or multiple days without eating to give your pancreas a break and bring down your insulin levels. And that is the key. That is the obesity code. Here's Dr. Fung again. If you look at the history of uh, fasting, you see that people have been doing it for many thousands of years. And it wasn't no big deal. It's just part of religion or as part of uh, culture or what, what have you. However, um, starting about 30, 40 years ago, uh, just probably actually just after World War II, there was this enormous push against uh, missing a meal ever. And it was driven largely in part by the food companies. So um, there are these snack uh, food companies that, for example, began to get the bright idea that, hey, if you're trying to sell food, it's really hard to compete at breakfast, lunch, or dinner because there's lots of people there anyway. So Cadbury in, in the United Kingdom decided that they would start um, advertising that, hey, it's a good idea to eat a snack after school or so on. And gradually over time, what used to be considered fairly bad nutrition and bad practice. So for example, in the 1970s, when I grew up, uh, just about nobody ate after school snacks everybody who tried to get one said no one we don't have snacks in the house and two you're going to ruin your dinner so forget it so that was kind of that so people ate three meals a day and that was it uh, because of this sort of uh, persistent advertising to people and a lot of this advertising is insidious so not just ads to consumers but also uh, sponsoring dietitians, sponsoring physicians to go out there and start promoting this idea that snacking is really really good for you over many decades from the 50s down to the 80s there's sort of this increasing idea that eating is going to eating more frequently is a good idea 
And they say that, well, if you eat all the time, then you're going to nip that hunger in the bud and then you're not going to eat more. And this idea has never been proven. In fact, it's not true at all. In fact, the more frequently you eat, the more that you generally eat. And this is not really hard to understand. That's the reason we have appetizers. The, it, a little bit of food can stimulate the appetite because it gets you know the saliva flowing you start thinking about food and that kind of thing and once you start thinking about the food then you're going to get more hungry so this idea that you can eat a little bit you know cut the hunger and then you'll eat less later is really just completely wrong like 100% incorrect exactly wrong it's the total opposite. If you eat more frequently, you're going to generally eat more unless you rigidly control your portions. Um, but in, even then, you're going to be leaving yourself hungry, which is very difficult to do. That is, you can eat um, and leave yourself hungry, but it's not easy. It's not fun. You want to eat until you're full. So eating more frequently is a really, really bad idea. And people uh, started to say that, well, there's all these problems with fasting and so on. And again, without any real evidence that this was true. So you should never skip a meal, never skip breakfast and all these, uh, you should eat six times a day. All of these ideas started to take hold until you get to sort of 2000 and you know, 17, where the whole idea of even missing a snack is sort of makes people go into fits. You know, it's like, oh my God, you missed your breakfast, you're going to die sort of idea. And if you were a dietitian and you said that it's okay to miss breakfast, you were kind of ostracized. It was just ridiculous. Like, I'm not sure what people thought was going to happen if they missed a single meal. And the answer, of course, is nothing. So as physicians, we tell people to fast all the time. You have to fast if you want to do a colonoscopy, if you want to go for surgery, if you go, want to go for any kind of procedure, or even if you want to do fasting blood work, you need to fast. And remember, the word itself, break fast, breakfast, is acknowledges that fasting is simply a part of everyday life. It's the flip side of eating. You want to make sure your fasting and your feeding stay in balance. All that happens during your fasting is that as insulin falls, your body gets the signal to start burning some of that stored food energy. That stored food energy is in the form of glycogen or body fat. In either case, it's good. If you've stored too much glycogen or if you've stored too much body fat, then hey, this is a great chance for you to use some of that. And what's wrong with it? That's what it's there for. That's why you store body fat, because it's not there for looks. It's there for you to use if there is no food available. So all you're doing is giving your body a chance to use the food that it has stored away from sort of previous meals. And what is more natural than that? In fact, there's nothing more natural than that. Instead, we start doing these completely artificial things such as eating six times a day, snacking all the time. All we can start thinking about is food because we're like, oh my God, I need to snack, I need to snack, I need to eat, I need to snack, I need to eat, I need to snack. And then it's like, oh hey, I wonder why I'm not losing weight. It's like, why don't you go do something else instead of thinking about food? That's the whole point. It's okay if you miss a meal, your body can handle it. Your body knows what to do with that. 
Will you get hungry? Yeah, you might get hungry. You might not get hungry. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but it's okay. You can handle it. One pound of body fat is approximately, it's not exactly, but approximately 3,500 calories. So for most people, one pound of fat will actually last two days. And most people have far more than one pound of fat. So you could, if you are 30 pounds overweight, you could fast for 60 days and be fine. The world's longest fast was 382 days. So there are nuances when you're doing longer fasts and so on. But the general idea is if you're doing short fasts, it's certainly less than 24, 36 hours. Hey, it's okay. You, we didn't grow eating all the time. Like, let's turn back the clock to the 1700s. You're a peasant, you're in the field, you're working. Do you think they're snacking six times a day? They're breaking at 10.30 to go inside, make themselves a little bit of uh, oatmeal or something, and then get back out there? No, they just worked from sunup till sundown. Uh, a lot of people never ate breakfast. Breakfast for many years was considered something of a luxury. It was something for the upper classes. The, the lower classes just didn't didn't eat breakfast because, well, there was no time. Or they ate breakfast and didn't eat anything until they came back in from the field, sort of at nighttime. And guess what? It was okay. And you don't have these metabolic problems because now, of course, that excess body fat is not just something we don't want, but it's also making us sick. It's causing all kinds of diseases. But the good news is that we can let our bodies simply take care of itself. We can let our bodies burn off the body fat, but you got to let it do what it's supposed to do. You got to use the fat, the body fat, for what it was meant for, which is for you to use when there's nothing to eat. So don't give yourself anything to eat. Instead, what you want to think about is letting your body eat that body fat for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. And that's the way to think about it. So Mona started doing some intermittent fasting with IDM. I started off by uh, doing 18-hour fasts a couple times a week and really just sitting in in the Zoom meetings and listening to other people's stories. There are some, what I would refer to as some really crazy people who are doing 36- and 71-hour fasts, learning about a ketogenic diet and how uh, everything I was ever told about how to eat I was being told the complete opposite. I was told to add butter to my diet and olive oil to my diet, um, to stop eating the carbs and add the fat. Um, it was like I finally had a, a license to skip breakfast, and then when I did eat breakfast, I could have bacon and eggs, guilt-free. It was awesome. It was like even, you know, even when I've struggled with trying to get past 24 hours of fasting, Megan has suggested uh, fat fasting days where, you know, for three days you could eat olives, bacon, and eggs and avocados. Well, it was like somebody, <laughs> it's like I died and went to heaven. I could have all these wonderful, healthy, fatty foods and didn't need to feel guilty about them. If there's one thing I've learned in my journey is that fasting and its effects and its effectiveness and safety are completely counterintuitive. The ketogenic diet as well, where you have to eat more fat in order to lose weight, is also extremely counterintuitive and difficult for a lot of people to get. 
once I hit the 24-hour mark, it was like, hey, I could do this. And this was around September where I started to really gain confidence and could do three uh, 24-hour fasts in a week. Then I graduated to 42-hour three times a week. Intermittent fasting was just the thing that Mona needed to bring her insulin levels down and absolutely kill her hunger cravings. You know, after the, when I started to add the extended fasting, where I added, you know, 72 hours or 42 hours, when I broke my fast, I would break them with a, I would actually crave an avocado with salt, um, pour some flavored infused olive oil on top, or cook up a baking tray of bacon and sit and enjoy, you know, three and sometimes six or eight slices of bacon. I don't need to have that much now, but in the beginning it was, this can't possibly be good for me, yet I continue to have it. And then December 31st, 2017, New Year's Eve, Mona did her first long fast. Seven days. Yeah, we had finished dinner. I started at 8.30 p.m. Um, and decided from that moment that I, this was it. I was going to do some, some long fasts and stop flirting with fasting and actually do something about it. So let's talk about your weight loss. Did it surprise you? I would step on the scale first thing in the morning after a shower and go, oh, no way, that can't be right. I even changed the battery on my scale to make sure it wasn't the battery was failing because I couldn't believe I was actually losing weight. And what happened to your blood sugar? My uh, A1C is 6.9. It was 12 when I started. Richard Morris here. I'm the other keto dude. The HbA1c is a diagnostic test that your doctor can order for you that can measure how many of your red blood cells have become glycated or caramelized by the glucose in your circulation. If your glucose control is healthy, you'll have around 5% of your red blood cells showing signs of glycation. Red blood cells live on average for three months, so it really tells you how good your glucose control has been for the last three months. If your HbA1c is in the range from 5.7% to 6.4%, you are considered to be pre-diabetic, which just means that you are on the slippery slope to diabetes. If your HbA1c is over 6.5, you can be diagnosed as being type 2 diabetic. The higher your HbA1c, the greater your risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetic kidney disease, lower extremity amputation, diabetic blindness. The standard of care is to medicate type 2 diabetics to an HbA1c of around 7%. If they tried to get you to lower non-diabetic levels, they would run the risk of overcorrecting and causing hypoglycemia, which is extremely dangerous. So the best that medicine today can achieve is to keep you diabetic, but reducing slightly the risk of diabetic complications. Only a dietary intervention can get your HbA1c into non-diabetic ranges safely and without the risk of hypoglycemia. You know, my HbA1c was 11.2 when I was diabetic. Within five months, it was 5.2, and it has been in that range for over three years now. At an HbA1c of 12%, Mona was in trouble, at risk for all of the complications of diabetes. At her current HbA1c, she is at a much lower risk and already doing better than the best drug therapies available, and there is good chance that she may, in time, be able to get into non-diabetic ranges. So uh, I'm not, you know, uh, where I want to be just yet, um, 
but I'm getting there. And I know I have all the confidence in the world that what I'm doing is, like I said to some, I was on a girls weekend this weekend, and they were all shocked at what I looked like, hadn't seen me for a long time. And uh, when I talk about intermittent fasting, they did the same thing I did, looked at me like I had two heads. Um, but the only answer I had for them was the proof was in the pudding. Um, it works and it's gotten me healthier on so many levels. If you've listened to other episodes of the Obesity Code podcast, you'll notice a familiar pattern repeating itself over and over again. Here, Mona describes the scenario that it seems we've all experienced. Well, I, I think for in the beginning, you know, you, you go to the doctor, they tell you your blood sugar is up a little bit, your sugars are up, and they say, you need to go and lose weight. And I would say, well, I exercise regularly. I, you know, I go to the gym six days a week. I follow the food plans of the dietitian and this isn't working. So, you know, you put your trust and your faith into these people who are supposed to be the, the knowledgeable ones and you follow that and it doesn't work. And you believe that it's you, it's something wrong with you. Conventional wisdom is wrong. What works is completely counterintuitive. So when, when I started reading uh, the obesity code especially and started looking at the science and so much of, every, of what I read uh, made sense to me. And so uh, following, even though I had fear and even, even now when I make a meal for my family, I still get the weird look when I'm adding butter, garlic butter on top of a steak because, you know, we've been told for 30 or 40 years, this is not good for you. But in reality, this is good for me. Well, I always thought exercise was the answer to everything. It was, you know, a body in motion will stay in motion, which of course that's true. But I, I couldn't understand why I would get up every morning at 530 in the morning, go drive to the gym, work out, and then come home, step on a scale and nothing would change. And sometimes it would go up, it wouldn't go down. Um, you know, I'd have maybe within the first month lose about 12 pounds. Like I mentioned, I did this boot camp for six days a week without missing consistently. Um, and still I had a few inch drop, but no, no real weight loss, 12 pounds in a year. I started really getting serious about intermittent fasting in October. And from October to February is when I've had the most weight loss and the most success. And I wasn't even going to the gym that often. I only go three days a week now, <laughs> work out half of what I used to. And yet I'm having three times the amount of the results. Mona continues to do a five to seven day fast once a month. And the results have been pretty great. I can proudly say I'm 180 pounds today. That's 65 pounds. Outstanding. Have there been any other benefits besides weight loss? Uh, well, I, I love to go shopping for new clothes, so I've been able to uh, buy new pants. I've been, uh, and tops, be able to change my clothing. That is a great success. Um, and I know that that's just, I'm just in the in-between stage. There's more to come. I still have a little ways to go. 
I don't have a time schedule. I just know that I'm getting healthy from the inside out. Do you tell people when you're fasting? In the beginning, I was really shy about talking about that. Uh, you know, I wouldn't even tell people I was fasting. And my when I first brought up fasting quite proudly to my endocrinologist, she shot it down and told me, no, I was not to fast. So she left me no choice but to not be 100% honest with her. Although when I went back to see her at the end of February, and I was 180 pounds, and uh, she hadn't done my A1C just yet, but everything else had come back to normal. Uh, she said, well, whatever you're doing is working. And so these life management changes you're making have changed your life, obviously. So keep up the good work. That's when I said to her that, well, I follow a ketogenic diet and I intermittent fast. And she just looked at me. She had nothing else to say. So... In the beginning, I wasn't really, uh, I was shy about it. My friends and family, I'm very open about it now. Um, if people say, well, ah, there's no way I could fast, I always say, yeah, I believe that too, until I started trying. And this weekend just happened to have a, a girls weekend with a, a group of friends who were like, how do you, how, there's no way I'll be able to fast. I eat five times a day. And I said, I believe that too for a long time, but if you read the, the science, the evidence on that, you know that it's not true. And it's really about changing the way you think. We, we play such head games with ourselves, especially when we're, we look at the scale and it can, nothing can knock the wind out of your, your, uh, sales, like stepping on a scale when you're having a good day. So the scale isn't the only form of measurement either, but the important thing is that you have to convince yourself that you're not going to die. And, and for me, scientifically, when I started hearing about people could go 30 days without food and I looked at how much overweight I was, I tell people, I was 145 pounds. I could go a month scientifically without eating and still be healthy. So two, 245, sorry, yeah. So, so you know, being just knowing scientifically that I could be that weight and I wouldn't starve to death and I wasn't going to hurt myself or my hormones by not eating, I tell people that... Uh, fasting has given me my life back. It's changed my life. It's given me energy. It gives me the ability to bend over and tie up my shoes without losing my breath. Um, I could. I just hiked up a mountain this weekend, uh, no problem with a 20-pound backpack on. Um, and no need to stop. Just keep going. That's great, Mona. Before we wrap it up, is there anything you want to say about uh, Megan and Dr. Fung? Well, I'm grateful for uh, both Megan and uh, Dr. Fung. I mean, I, I haven't actually spent any time with Dr. Fung, but I uh, have read all his books, just ordered the uh, the Diabetes Code. Uh, I, I love the material. I love that he's uh, out there telling doctors that they're doing it wrong. So, uh, you know, I, I quoted this the other night in a pub. I said... I give them five more years and you're going to see medical doctors treating type 2 diabetes like this in Canada. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And I think some of us who are here in Canada that are, are paving the way for our MDs that, you know, this is how we fixed ourselves. It wasn't the drugs you gave us or the diets we followed from you. It was the diets and the recommendations we followed from Dr. Fung and Megan. 
And that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.